Hey everybody, welcome to another special episode of The Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Ash Thorpe, joined by Andrew Harlick, and this is going to be episode 124 with AKQA creative director, Ian Wharton, who is the author of Spark for the Fire. Ian joins us this week to discuss the importance of retaining your youthful creativity, which is the core of his book. We also discuss the important power of working with the right team, and, he, and we dive deeply into attempting to decode the elusive characteristics of defining the concept of taste. It's a really good one, guys. You guys will enjoy this one. Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace, as you probably know, is an awesome service that enables you to create and present your work using their custom website builder. What once took way too much time and frustration is now eliminated, so you can just focus on making great work, and Squarespace does the rest We actually used it to create the podcast website, which we're super happy with. So start building your website today at squarespace.com. You can enter the offer code TCP at the checkout and get 10% off. So check it out. Also check out that our art education platform, LearnSquared. We have some really special things lined up to teach you all for this first semester that we have going on starting uh, October 21st. So check it out at learnsquared.com. Uh, here we go, everybody. Episode 124 with the mighty Ian Wharton. Let's go ahead. There's a lot of things to talk about um, in regards to you and your career, and, and I, I've made a a pretty long list of questions uh, I'm hoping to get some get into and stuff so we should probably just j- dig in and uh, let's probably start with um, your book I think it's an, I think it should be interesting for our listeners to kind of get a, a sense of it you are kind enough to send it to me thank you very much I think even Andrew got a copy so yeah thanks dude thank you so yeah, much I have been probably busier than ever in my entire life and I haven't even been able to read anything physical I've been only listening to books so unfortunately, I haven't been able to really get into it. So I'm really curious to see what it's about. Um, I do plan on reading it because it looks awesome. It sounds awesome. It sounds exactly like the books that I'm into. So, um, But if you wouldn't mind maybe kind of talking about it, we can kind of go into the process of making it, what it's about, why you did it, and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, sure. So the book, I mean, I guess it was really, it was actually a product of me um, needing something to do. Uh, so it was a bizarre point in my career I was part of this young technology startup company uh, and we were at the beginning of the app industry and the mobile industry and it was going well and I just needed a I've always had side projects pretty much since I was 16 I've had side projects and for some reason I just thought writing a book would be a good thing to do and I didn't particularly police my thought as to whether or not it could be done uh, you just kind of dived in so the I guess the the reason for it was I guess I started noticing the the things I'd done in my career with various groups of people, the successful ones at least, all had uh, similar reasons why they were successful or why they meant something to me or why they improved my skill set. And it was really this thought that, um, you know, this idea of youthful thinking, which is what the book is about, and it's really all the characteristics of youth that we usually unwillingly surrender through age and experience that actually produce the best bits of creativity. So it was me trying to codify that to some degree. And it's all just stories. It's not an academic book. It's just a collection of things that have happened to me. And I interviewed a couple of cool people as well to get their perspectives. Awesome. So it's more or less just kind of 
trying to find the rhythm of what is that spark, I, I suppose, right? Like, and you, as you mentioned, the childlike nature of creativity, the wonderment and stuff, right? Exactly. I think the it was more, I think it was trying to hold myself accountable, I guess, for the rest of my career, because I guess um, you can, it's just so dumb easy to get complacent. It's so easy to get cynical about things and neither of those things are conducive to creativity. So as me, it was trying to, it's more is, I mean, everyone says, write the book you want to read, right? So it was more for me just saying, here are the things that, that contribute to you being content and hopefully good work. And, um, and yeah, and here they are. And hopefully you know, the people that have read it have got something out of it as well. That's awesome. Yeah, there's something really uh, unique to be said about that concept of learning, how we learn, um, caution, con- be very, being very cautious of being jaded, um, because as you said, it's kind of like an ex- extinguisher when, when you, I've encountered some of the most amazing talent, talented people and they're filled with weird insecurities or, um, hyper jaded, uh, it's what I consider them. And it's always been odd to me to see, you know, I think through success and whatever have, whatever, um, they kind of lock themselves in a, in a box of thinking and existing, I find for per, for me personally, anytime I approach something um, naively, like you said with your book, uh, I find myself lost in a really interesting journey. Um, and if I open my mind and, and heart, whatever you want to call it, openly to the experience, it usually y- yields some of the best uh, experiences creatively and like just friendship wise with people. There's a really special bond that occurs with that. You know, you notice the same yeah. thing. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I mean. There are, there are maybe like six themes in the book, um, and one of them is just this idea of, um, I mean, in the chapter in the book is called Embrace the Ridiculous, and it's, I guess the point of it is probably the most important one in the book. It's that, so I work in advertising right now, I mean, technically advertising industry, and increasingly people try and force certainty on creativity, because two things can happen, you know, with an idea, so the you get an idea the two possible outcomes are it works or it doesn't work and you look a bit stupid you know and i think in a business when you deal with global brands or whatever or movie studios in your case i think increasingly people want to have their backs covered because if if they choose an idea that's worked 10 times before, then they can say, oh, if it didn't work, you know, we just got unlucky because all the data was there to say it worked. But if they choose an idea that's completely irrational and illogical and devoid of any certainty and it fails, then, you know, jobs and department budgets are at risk. And I don't think people often want to do that. And I think good creativity requires bravery. I think the brilliant thing about when you're a kid is you just don't you don't think about it. You just, you just dive in. Um, and I guess all of these characteristics are entirely possible to hang on to. We just need little reminders and awareness, huh? Yeah. Tr- triggers and awareness and all that kind of stuff. When you're slipping off the slope of, of becoming jaded or becoming, um, a quote unquote adult. And I don't blame people for wanting to, uh, mitigate re- um, risk. That makes sense. There's whole departments and people and their whole lives are dedicated, dedicated to mitigating risk. Um, I don't blame them because that's a fear game and it's a weird, it's a weird way of thinking. I don't necessarily subscribe to it because I do know where the muse comes from and I know where, where to find it. 
it's hard to get there all the time, but I know the formula and what you're touching on is exactly that. Even, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not, it doesn't even have to do with um, creating artistic content. It can also go into it, somebody that keeps coming to mind as you're describing what you're talking about is Einstein, um, mm-hmm. a brilliant mind who's managed to go into the ether of imagination and pull out these just anomalies basically. Um, and he constantly encouraged the fostering of, you know, the childlike mind and same with like Neil Tyson, for example, he's Mm -hmm. very much in that same realm where he's just enjoys the, the playfulness of thinking and the honesty of just imagining and and conceiving because, because a lot of times that's all we have, right. Especially, um, let's look and let's look at, possibly Einstein. Um, he's just a human on earth and he's imagining worlds, laws and and equations that should exist beyond our reach and grasp and comprehension. So you really have to use your imagination and only way to really activate those kind of really deep seated imaginative concepts is to be kind of a child. And I think the anomaly there is, I think Stephen Hawking even has quite a bit of that too. Um, but the only way to really activate those things is to, I believe, is to uh, be willing to fail at the same time, being willing to embrace the playful like joy of just curiosity and creativity, because that's really yeah. where it all comes from. Exactly right. And it's a recurring theme. I mean, you hear it from uh, Da Vinci, you hear it from yes. Picasso and everyone else. And it just seems, it's just one of those things. I, mean, I think every creative person, knows knows these things but even we forget to put them into practice so um yeah i think we just need reminders and i think for for ourselves for the teams that we build and for the people we work with um and there's a great there's a there's a great thing with so danny boyle is one of my i guess one of the people that kind of really inspire me and there's a there's a great thing he did the the um obviously the, the olympic opening ceremony he art directed that and he worked with a, a writer friend of his called Frank Cottrell Boyce, and he said, working with Boyle, he said he just he put us all in a room and he and he reduced us to the time when we were kids, when you didn't have any fear of saying something stupid, you were just wondering and we were just playing, and and the result of it was, I think, one of the best you know, Olympic opening sequences that ever been made. So uh, there's definitely merit to it. We just need to just we just need to kick ourselves into gear to remember it. Sure. And I think that's, um, that's a a perfect storm where you have somebody like Danny who's worked his whole life to establish his name to be able to have the power of pulling all those kind of people into a room and allowing to have control and, and understanding how to use that tool basically in his group and his communicative powers to do so. So, I mean, that's something that's very interesting. It's really cool. I, I really enjoy Danny as well and all his work and, I love listening to his commentaries and just kind of listening to, to the way that he works and functions and stuff and his ideas of just getting things done and focusing yeah. on, you know, what matters most to him and whatever project that is too. His films are yeah, great and too. The, and the diversity of his work as well. And also he's yes. from the same town in the UK that I, that I was oh, brought up in. So I have, <laughs> yeah. have a nodded connection. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're closely connected mentally to, <laughs> to his <laughs> path. And, but yeah, <laughs> that always helps. So definitely. Um, I think the thing when, when you're doing this stuff is that you're always jumping off so far and it's always helps to, um, there's something innate, I think in us, in our, in our nature, in our genetic makeup and our mental makeup is, 
it's you, if somebody else jumps first and you see that they land, you're okay with it. But it's really hard to be the first one to jump um, because it goes against almost everything that you know, the years and years of evolution have acquired and developed inside of us to do so. But if you can be um, like a trendsetter or a visionary, and oftentimes the the oddities of being a visionary is scrutiny and dealing with all that kind of stuff. Do you touch on that much at all? Like being uh, somebody that's progressive? Yeah, I think so. I think the it's, um, I think it's the way it comes across in the book is more, Progressive, yes, but also not, I guess it's not limiting yourself. So, again, that kind of comes back to Danny Boyle being diverse. But I think we are increasingly taught that if you want to get good at something or if you want to become a master of your craft, that you have to kind of do one thing and do it well and you, that's it. And you specialize for your life and, you know, from Gladwell and his bloody 10,000 hours argument and all that kind of thing. <laughs> I, I just think it's risky. I think that actually com- creativity is completely transferable. I think it's one of the few instances where that's the case. I think if I, if you're a doctor, maybe not. If you're a lawyer, almost certainly not. It's But creativity, I think, is applicable to pretty much anything. I mean, I, if I look at the people on my team, I have a guy who's an incredible designer, but then he goes home and he writes a score to a short film he's made. And it's, you know, I think, I think that's easy to forget. I think it's good to have a deep knowledge in one area, but never to think that, no, well, if, if I've been a designer for 10 years, then I definitely can't write a script or I definitely can't do a book or, Hmm. you know, I think it's quite debilitating. So it comes across in that way. I think. Sure. Well, I think you mentioned earlier the six uh, principles that you have in your book, right? The, uh, I, I think it would be interesting to just like glide over them for everyone who's not familiar with them. Yeah. Because yeah, we've already covered a couple of them. Uh, yeah, so the first one, yeah. So the first one is about the concept of unpoliced thought. So, uh, you know, not relying on data and not relying on logic really to dictate what happens in your creativity because what we really need are completely illogical connections between the whole array of things and often the time that it works is when you know it's, it was a complete mystery and you can't quantify or you know, it's completely ineffable so the idea of just unpoliced thought is what it means to be creative in my opinion um, and the second one is that creativity is transferable so again what we just talked about that um you know, I think to say that we can only do one thing well quite significantly undersells human potential. Uh, and then the idea of um, self-promotion. So I think most people overtly are opposed to the idea of self-promotion. And I think it carries this unrealistic stigma, which is if I tell people the things I've done or the things I want to achieve, they'll think I'm arrogant or hmm. Um, which I think is true. Uh, you know, some of the best things happen because people put themselves out there and then you find collaboration or you find recognition, which is a constant reminder of the thing you love. Um, and then the last three are one is about purpose, you know, having a, a reason beyond cash in its very simplest form because um, children have no concept of that and they seem to get by pretty well. Uh, the idea of learning forever, I think, as you get older. That's the best. Um, you start, yeah, I think you start to think it might be an unrewarding pursuit to learn something, but 
the best people in the world know that their education is never over. And the final one is just called Dare to Fail, which, I mean, when I wrote the book, it was, no one was really saying this fail fast and fail hard stuff. And now yeah. I think it's been parodied a bit, actually, from Silicon Valley. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's still kind invalid. of ridiculous how much people yeah, are like yeah. into it, the failure aspect <laughs> of it. It's kind of annoyed me for a while, actually. It's the same. And it, and it pains me that it's in the book. But when, when I wrote it, it's not celebrating failure no one celebrates failure because nothing you know you don't you don't some of these people are and it's annoying it's like it's it's infuriating so yeah. this is more about i mean the, the guy i reference as a story i didn't get a chance to meet him unfortunately there's most of the people in the book i, I pursued and, and i got but uh, a guy called uh, gareth edwards who directed godzilla most recently mm. and film called monsters you guys know yep and uh and his story is that's the that's the area of dare to fail that I'm talking about, which is he was stuck in his job at the BBC as a visual effects guy. He wanted to direct films. Everyone around him said you can't do it, and he said, "Well, fuck you! I'm going to leave my job. I'm going to get a awesome. cast of two people and a crew, and I'm going to make a bloody film that's going to get me nominated for a BAFTA." So, Good job, it's that, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah that's that's absolutely it. Um, I think to I think in the in the sense of dare to fail with the understanding of pursuing your heart. I think what, I think what you're talking about is, is combining this with a couple of the other equations within your six like principles in your book, you know, exactly. cause I think just dare to fail. It's like, yeah, okay. Um, the, like we talked about it, it can be infuriating. I remember encountering, encountering so many people up there that are just like, yeah, let's just fail and let's just throw money because we have money. Let's just fail all day. And I'm like, wow, like, <laughs> that's probably the worst way to go about it. And then I've heard a lot exactly. of people just saying, you know, embrace failure. I'm like, no, like that's not, that's not what this is about. It's about being curious, understanding that you might possibly fail, but the intentions are all there to succeed, you know? Exactly. Um, that's the clarity that I've always tried to approach with this stuff because yeah, the whole fail, like now and keep failing and failure is the, is the shit. It's like, fuck off with that. Yeah. It drives me mad. (laughs) I mean, yeah, fucking hell. And it comes from people like Facebook and it's like, well, you know, you're making maybe $3 billion a year. So sure. (laughs) I think it's perspective. A lot of times I think people get their sources and their, and their things out of perspective. They don't see the time. The time is really important. Let's say you go to like an artist site and you just quickly browse over, or you sit there and watch a movie. You go and sit and watch the movies. Let's say by Ridley Scott right now. He's he's been doing films and making films and commercials for his entire life, basically. So when you watch one of his films and you go, eh, it's okay. You didn't realize it took him five years to maybe produce that, make that, and he was on location and all the oddities just to make that one thing. It's easy to see. It's easy, it's easy to forget and get lost in that. And that's not necessarily your job and have that perspective as a con- consumer. And, and, but it's, it's important to be aware of that perspective because especially if you're thinking about doing this stuff, you have to be aware of oftentimes what I do is I'll go, I'll, I'll go, Oh, I like that director's work. And I'll go instantly to Wikipedia and read about them and see where they are, where they were in their life when they were doing the things that I really liked. And then once I found it, go, Oh wow, there were 32 when they were doing that. Okay. I'm pretty close to that. Yeah, My mind state exactly is pretty close to thing. it. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that, I think that's important though, because you're getting a, yeah. a time landscape of perspective. Exactly. I think that's really I, I do key. with them. Um, I mean, I did it, uh, Chris Nolan probably most recently. Cause I just saw his first, his first feature film. The following? I think he was like, following? 
Yeah, the following. Yeah. I think he was like 28. It's like, fucking hell, I'm already two years behind. You yes. Know? But, yeah. but it's like, a, it's, that to me is inspiring. It's, you know. Um, he's very progressive. And there's some guys that are, are out there. He's a very persuasive. He communicates incredibly well. And I think with directing, the thing that I'm learning as I be, grow into my own role as a director is, is it's, it's a totally different task than I ever imagined it to be. I thought when I was, had this weird perspective of the reality, which is completely do- distorted by my own, my own expectations, it was, it was like, you know, somebody that has ultimate power and has all this stuff. It's not that at all. It's actually somebody that probably works mostly the hardest <laughs> doesn't get paid the most. So you got to understand those perspectives unless they work a deal. And it's not necessarily about that, but that's uh, something that I learned along the way too. Um, and, and the risks some of the most, basically um, putting your name completely on it, all the executive producers who are pushing at you and trying to make you do the film that they want, they can hide and scurry away from this project, but you cannot, it's part of you and it becomes you. Um, and the uh, the brutalness of it, but the thing that the core unlight underlining thing is, I realize you're just a, a really amazing communicator. Well, if you're good, you have to be really amazing, and you have to pull potential out of your team. You have to understand what the potential is, make those decisions, and and be really key and understanding how to get the best out of people. That's really yeah, the core right. of it. You're you're uh, you know like you're visionary for one, and then you have to have that vision, be str- strong with it. And then make decisions with it, and then also communicate to others this idea. The better you can do that, the better the, the project is. I think. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I actually think the equation for for you know creative people on a team is I think it's pretty simple. I think people want the opportunity to work on things that they're going to be proud to say they were involved in at the end of it. Yes, and a byproduct of that is people need some kind of ownership. And when either of those things don't exist, you get you know, people who are disenfranchised, people who do passive-aggressive things like resign or storm off set. And I think, I, just, I think it's, honestly, I think it's that simple. I think people just need ownership so mm-hmm. that when the thing is done, whatever it is, they can just say, hey, everyone, check out this thing. And this is how proud I am of it, you know? Yes, and engaging people on the idea that you are a part of this and it is important that you're here. Anytime that I encounter a very high level or anybody that I'm working with on creative, I am, I'm very much in the idea of let's share this. Even if you have a bad idea, share it and we, we'll either embrace it or reject it and we'll go on, you know? I think it's really important. I think it's, I think it's a vital part of you hit it perfectly the ownership is is really key mm-hmm. anytime that i've ever felt really good about a project that i've worked on is i've been able to communicate directly with the director or have some sort of uh moment where i remember going wow like they really let, just let me go like ender's yeah. game was a fine a fine example of that where they just they had they just really wanted me to just keep going and just dig down deeper and it's like the first real big project i'd ever been on so i was like sure let's just keep going this is fun, yeah. and that just kept- and the end result shows that as well. By the way, yeah. I, you can you can tell that it was a labor of love, and that it wasn't killed by committee. You know? That that's exactly it, and I and, and realizing that through the process, it was like going to school, but I was getting paid to do it and being very aware. <laughs> How important do you find it for your own self to be constantly aware of your surroundings? Is that a vital part of your kind of success? Yeah, I mean, I yeah, hundred. Completely, it goes. I mean, it goes to. I think self awareness, just in general, I think is is pretty important. I think um, it's like one of my favorite sayings is 
So there used to be this saying in the advertising industry that lasted for about five years, and we come up with a shitload of them, and some of them are right and some of them aren't. And the buzz phrase for years was that content is king. That's what everyone was saying. And then I never really agreed with it until this guy, a guy called Gary Vaynerchuk, who is <laughs> this loud-mouthed American entrepreneur who's built this wine empire and now he's got a media company. And he, I saw him speak at this Guardian media conference and he just said, uh, he said, if content is king, then context is God. <laughs> and uh, I think context in anything is yeah. one of the most important things. And if you can read the room, if you can read the team, yep. it goes back to the communication thing, then you'll have success. If you miscommunicate or misinterpret context, you're screwed. Genuinely believe that. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. That's actually kind of a funny way of, of how he put it because it's very true. Understanding the context, being self-aware is very key. We just had a really amazing podcast with Errolson Hugh and he talked, we talked quite a bit about self-awareness and how vital and pivotal that is to success, really being aware of your surroundings, the people around you, what you're trying to do, your intentions on a daily basis. How often do you kind of come back to yourself and reflect, do self-reflection? Do you do notes, lists, anything like that? Uh, so I, I probably don't do it. I, I don't really evaluate myself in a written way. I think the moments I find of reflection, and I actually don't have many in, in my day, but one of them is, I mean, it's also my kind of Zen time is just at the gym. I mean, it's just, I go pretty much every day only for an hour. It's just, that's my thing. And that's probably self-reflection. And I'm also very lucky in that the team that's around me at AKQA and also the teams I've worked with historically, um, never never um they don't really let me believe my own bullshit you know <laughs> if i uh, if i step out of line they'll tell me and we've built a good relationship where uh it's just a very flat hierarchy you know and they'll be the first to tell me if i'm being an asshole but i i think as it as far as it goes i'm i'm fairly mindful of how i communicate something or how i read a situation that's good i think that's important to have that and it's also very important to have those pillars of people that are uh i kind of look at um, what we do or creativity or just life in general i the i kind of equate it to the ocean and it has currents and it has tides and um it's has its rhythm in its own chaotic way and you have these buoys and you can be out there sailing along and you're with your own intentions in your own boat and but if you have your your buoys basically like my wife is very much a pillar she's my best friend and we're very strong together and we clash sometimes you know which is i think is important she keeps me you know within range but i think it's really important to have those people uh, i'm a firm believer in your environment and i always think of the saying iron sharpens iron because it's very mm -hmm. true I can't imagine ever being as successful as I am without amazing people pushing me creatively. Um, not even people that I've met, you know, people, let's say like Frank Frazetta or something, you know, somebody who just pushes their own level. And I'm sure they were inspired by the past and people, other people with their intentions. And I mean, how many people were inspired by creatives like Da Vinci, for example, or we mm. even mentioned Einstein. These are, you know, household names. There's many people beyond that are under the spectrum of the, you know, social um, glass basically. But um, I think that's really important. Do you, 
you mentioned talking about working with teams and establishing kind of building a team. What are the, some of the things and the qualities in which you look for and try to um, build and kind of be cautious of when you're building a team and having a functional team doing something like focusing on a task? Yeah. So I think, um, so I always try to look for people who are multidisciplinary, um, at least to some degree. Uh, so most of the people on my team are incredibly good designers or incredibly good writers, but then branch out into other things. So they have a deep knowledge in something, but then one like a, a writer who's a great photographer. So I always look for multidisciplinary people. I always look for people who, um, I mean, you can if uh, if you have a job interview at AKQA and you can be the best damn designer in the world. If you're a bit of an asshole or if you've got an ego that's unchecked, if you've no humility, then you won't. I mean, you won't get past me certainly. Because uh, <laughs> the reality is, I spend more time with the people on my team at my work than I do with my partner. You know, <laughs> sure. So sure. you need to you need to find the right cultural fit. And in an organization like AKQA, I mean, there's 2,000 of us around the world, and it all comes from, you know, the the way we hire and our culture, it all comes from our CEO, uh, a good friend of mine called Ajaz Ahmed. And, you know, if the CEO is visible and hands-on and hires his lieutenants correctly, which Ajaz does, then it should filter down. So we've got a very unique culture at AKQA, and I think... Um, yeah, I think a broad set of disciplines and people who, you, know, you can easily tell the people who, who give a damn and want to accomplish things and the people who are just, you know, um, who have kind of mentally unsubscribed from what they do. Sure. I think the multiple disciplinary is really important. I think one key thing that I look for always is somebody that's better than me uh, in, a, in an aspect that I'm not very good. Because I know that yeah. by connecting with them, I'm going to find we're going to have a really interesting connection where I'm going to find, oh, wow, you do it like that. Oh, that's interesting. You know, oh, OK, yeah. that's cool. And then it's there's these these bits of enlightening, enlightening. You know, you mentioned the ego um, and how, you know, people go unchecked. Why do you think that is? And, and is there principles in which you try to, I, I definitely have my own and I can share them with you once you kind of go into yours, but is there things that you've done or um, are aware of when it comes to checking your own ego and, and kind of making sure that you're besides just your friends, is there something that you do? I think, um, so, I mean, I'm almost certainly stepped out of line in my career and said things that have come across wrong in a conference or in an article 10 years ago, almost certainly. But I think, I think now it's just not, just don't take it too seriously. I think it's, for me, it's that, it's probably just, there's, there's, a, there's two things I really value in creativity that I always try and check myself on. One is um, I value highly a good degree of ignorance because I think, Human beings are incredible self-saboteurs, and I think uh, more often than not, things don't happen purely because of ourselves. And the second thing is um, I actually value quite highly a certain degree of indifference. You know, I think you can, you can care too much about something. You can take things too seriously. And we're not saving lives. We're, we're helping companies. We're helping people be inspired and entertained and hopefully contributing something meaningful to their lives. But yeah, I think it's just, um, I think I love what I do 80% of the time and, you know, and 
the 20%, maybe I'm a miserable bastard and thinking, what the hell am I doing? But the vast majority of the yeah, time, same. I was like, this is, this is pretty good, you know? Um, yes. You need you need the polars, right? You need the you need the either end of the scale. Um, yeah. But those two things for me, I think, it's just, I just don't, don't take it too seriously, you know? Sure. To play devil's advocate, there are people in our field that are taking it incredibly seriously and creating crushing work. And so it's yeah. kind of, and then you see that and you go like, wow, they really got serious about topography. And they got so serious that they built an ego about around it. And now they have this kind of, I don't know, um, they have an existence, which is based upon their level of intensity on topography, for example, yeah. I'm, I'm not speaking about anybody. I'm just, just throwing it out there. And so when you see that and you see that success for, let's say a, a student or somebody starting out, somebody new, which we all should always be right. We should always be mm-hmm. student of life. Um, but for people that are starting out, they can see that, Oh, that that's a part of the equation, I guess that must be intense. And then with intensity comes that. And, and, and anytime that I've found that my ego goes out of check is because I do take things too seriously. And, um, it's hard to play that juggling act when to, you know, it's like good cop, bad cop, like when to play those roles and how to play them. It takes a bit of learning, I think, you know? Yeah, Um, I think so. And particularly in business, this manifests, right? Because I mean, some of, if I think back to some of the organizations I've dealt with, even at AKQA, I mean, you just think, I mean, this, it, it's just, uh, I mean, I worked with Formula One for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And that was at one point one of my biggest clients. And um, we got to work with Bernie Eccleston, who's the, obviously the CEO of F1 and the, the titan billionaire that he is at 84 years old. And we met him a couple of times in his organization and, I mean, I had meetings with some of his underlings and it's the first time I've had someone threaten me in a meeting, you know, (laughs) in a a client meeting. I think it's just, and you just walk away from that thinking like life's too, just too fucking short for this, you know, suffice to say they're not a client of ours anymore. And I just think that, and then I look at his organization and I look and yeah, it's, you know, it's doing what it's doing, but is it about to innovate? like MLB or NASCAR will. And I just think, yeah, probably not because of the culture he's built and the seriousness and intensity and the, uh, you know, that's around it. I just think that's not how you get creativity out of people, you know? I think you get bursts. I think you get fear. I think you get a fear equation that comes out and you get, you get great work out of it, but you, you, oh, actually let me say that, rephrase it. You get good work out of it from what I've understood, but you do not get great work. You don't get great work because great work comes from many other equations. Um, whereas that equation is mostly, uh, I've dealt with companies like that. I've dealt with people like that. And that's usually, um, they'll push you with fear but you can only go so far with fear because you're going to burn out. So the time span is very short. Your involvement with it, you're wanting to avoid it. So you're doing it out of fear and the work process is out of fear. So it's just the, the longevity is not there at all. And then your intentions aren't there and it all is in the work. It all comes back down to the work. And I, I guess with Formula One, it, it makes a lot of sense because it's part of the equation of what that is. You got to imagine like, you know, this is this is mankind making machines and pushing through time. And that's really the essence of what formula one is in my perspective, you know, um, it's much more than that, obviously, but it's very competitive and very much about, you know, man's control over our environment. And 
um, it kind of coincides, I guess, with what sounds like what their style is. But yeah, innovative, probably not because it can't be. And the mm-hmm. culture there is, you know, being aware of that, you know, and there's, there's so many companies like that. But I, I guarantee the ones that are thriving, the ones that are really making a difference in our world, um, and not just kind of falling into it, they, I, I believe that they're doing it through just, complete open honesty, great team, team collaboration and great culture. There's a couple of books. Uh, I'm really actually quite addicted to books and I'm constantly listening to them while I work. There's one that I'm going through called uh, tribal leadership, which is freaking mm-hmm. great. Have you read that one yet? I haven't. No, ah, it's good. You're going to love that one. That one's really good. I've been really enjoying that one. Um, there's quite a few other ones. I'll, I'll bring them up as we're talking. I always remember, forget the names of them, but yeah, I think that's a really important thing um, to be aware of, and just in in your own environment too. There's quite a few things, especially that I've noticed. There's a lot of trends within the film industry, and and also advertising. You mentioned mil- working at the mill and various companies like this. They can quickly go into this weird, uh, bad culture where people are overworked and yeah. people are are um, ushered into categories and become kind of like cogs in the wheel. And it's, it's kind of a sad thing when you hear about people that have these dreams and aspirations and wanting to go work on films. And then they just get kind of pushed into a weird, you know, facet of this massive machine and un- unaware of that. And also kind of lacking where they were originally wanting to go, you know? So like the, yeah, thing, think- like, you know, he, how he just said, fuck it, I'm going to go make my film. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I had a lot of, when I worked at the mill, I was there for two years and, incredible company obviously and their output is remarkable and yep i mean everyone who i worked with was uh, godlike in their talent for their for what they did and it was just um i mean the yeah i think it's very uh, you you have your role and you do your job and that's kind of it and i remember um, i mean when we were at the mill it's uh, so I, I worked at the mill with a, one of my best friends a guy called ed shires we went to university together. We made our short animated film together. And we both joined the mill <clears throat> kind of, at, I think we were 23 or something. And hmm. we, um, as I joined a, as, as art director. director. Yeah. Yeah. So I was not director. Ed joined as a CG generalist. He's now, I think, a visual effects lead. And it, they didn't really know what to do with us. It was because we were, our, our goal was obviously to always make more animated, animated films. And, we joined in the premise that, okay, well, Ed, you join the CG department, Ian, you be an art director and do visual effect art direction for, for commercials. Maybe after six months, we'll get you going with one of your films. And that never really materialized. But I remember distinctly that once uh, pretty much every treatment from a director came by my desk and I saw one one day, which was for a Sony game called Killzone 2. And I remember looking at the treatment thinking, we're going to miss a step here because the treatment's not good enough. It might've been rushed. Um, and I remember me and Ed, we took this decision. We said, okay, let's, it's, uh, let's go and see the producer, a guy called Alex Webster, still a good friend of mine. And we went and saw him and said, listen, you know, we, we came here to direct commercials. This treatment is fine. Give us the weekend to put together, um, you know, a, a counterpart to it, a second treatment that you can send to Sony if you think it's any good. And we worked on this treatment of what this game cinematic should be. And we gave it to Alex, very little expectation. And Alex sent it to Sony and Sony chose ours. And it's just, 
the the sad reality in that story is that had we never put ourselves in front of Alex, sure. we wouldn't even have been on his radar for directing things. You know, no, absolutely. Yeah, that's there. There is the dare to fail. Cause, yeah, exactly. But, but exactly. you're curious and you have your purpose. You're using some of these equations, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Being creative and yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important. You know, um, you never know until you try. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I heard a, um, a quote last night from Einstein again. Um, the only source of knowledge is experience. I thought that was a really a profound way of putting existence and knowledge, you know, and, 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 you know, you only know the experience by doing so exactly. you must, I think, you must try. And, and something else that's mentioned in the book is the misinterpretation of the word experience. So I don't think people like Einstein, I, I would argue that his definition of experience wasn't, uh, you know, knowledge comes from 20 years of doing something. I would argue his definition of that is knowledge comes from trying yes, as exactly. in the experience of it rather than, so I think we get, that's how I too many it. people get hung up on the, on the wrong definition of that. I think it's just, my, I would wait, for example, if a designer came to me looking for a job at AKQA, if he's been in the industry two months, but has got something in his portfolio that made me laugh or looked beautiful and was challenging, I would take him over the guy who's been it for 20 years and had bland stuff, you know? And sure. Was, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, well, you're looking for that spark, you know? You're looking for that thing that you connect with, and it's very important to have that. And you're, It's something that's communicative, you know, and that's an important thing, you know? I think it's important. Definitely. What do you what do you think makes a good art director? Um, so depending on, I guess, which industry you're in, there's probably different definitions of the role. But I think you um, you're the person that ultimately will be the only one who's going to spot flaws in it. You know, so. The, in my industry, the client might not, in, or the guys in the technology department might not. And the art director is, he or she, is the is the person who has the taste, you know? And I think taste is not something that you can teach. I genuinely think, I think, you know, everyone is pretty much creative, but I don't think everyone has taste. And I think the art director, in my team at least, should be the one who sets that taste, you know, and sets the design sets the direction could you define taste and what you think taste is i well i actually think it's almost you can't quite explain it i think it's um i think is it a culmination of many different things merged into one like somebody's ingredient i I guess yeah i think so i think it's it's knowing um culturally what's happening right now so you can i mean taste is different 20 years ago to it is now so there's a time part to that equation i guess but um I think, I mean, good stuff never goes out of style though. Yeah, that, yeah, that too. Yeah, I think, but there's, there's something in, I think the, if there's one thing I've learned from doing this for as long as I have and from building teams and things, it's that there are some people who just get it and there are some people who don't. And in my experience, I've rarely, rarely seen the people who don't get it suddenly get it five years later i think um and i think do you, do you so do you know robert mckee the guy who yes. wrote the book store yeah mm-hmm. so i mean a few of us from akk went to his one of his seminars a couple of years ago or a year ago which was amazing and his book's bloody brilliant as well and 
was like yeah, adaptation, the movie adaptation. Remember that scene where he goes into Robert oh, McKee? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's, uh, <laughs> Love that he, film. He was, no, he was intense. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's a very intense person. He yeah. opened, he opened his seminar by saying, if anyone's phone rings, we're going to stop and I'm going to stand here until that person brings me 10 pounds. And if they don't bring me 10 pounds, this conference, this seminar will not go on. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that pretty good. That's um, cool. He, he's demanding he some, control of the situation. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and he and he's an, he's a master of his craft. And but he said similar things about taste as a writer. As a new, you can either if you take writing as an example. I mean, if we have copyrights on my team, and when I was writing my book, and there's a principle of writing that I don't think you can teach, and it's just rhythm. And you either yes. have a rhythm and you understand the pace and flow of words. It's as important as a song or um, beats in you know anything and I just think you have that or you don't and I think an art director taste is a very similar ineffable thing yes. um, that, that you have or don't what let's 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 I love the idea of taste and I totally agree and I've art directed many jobs and I, and, and I understand what that voice is um, for me personally it comes from the the things that uh, throughout my life that have been pivotal whether good or bad and have affected my decision making forward. And um, I lo- I'd love to dive deeper into what taste is, what makes taste, because that this is a nugget of anomaly, basically. And if you can, if we can try to figure out what that lightning in a bottle is, which is very challenging, but those are the reasons why I, I like to make films because it's a it's mm-hmm. it's an anomaly. It's it's you don't know how it's going to turn out. You have all the best intentions in the world, and then fucking nature, you know, will just say, Hey, this is, this is how I'm going to make your, this is how I'm going to make you do things, you know, and changes your life. You know, people, you know, they encounter, they all get cancer or they have loss in the family or they have a child or they get married and that sends everything off in a different tangent basically, or they, they fall in love in the middle of something or, you know, you never know. So, but mm-hmm. I'd love to talk and dive deeper into what taste it is because mm-hmm. I think that's a, it's very much a, it, this podcast is a, pl- a great platform and a, and a space for people that are listening to kind of, we can get deeper into it because it would be harder to necessarily digest this and, and reading it. Whereas this is, there's a lot of enunciations and little pronouncements and little things that come off when we were, when we were kind of diving into it. So it'd be really great to talk about what we think yeah. taste really is. What's that lightning in a bottle, you know? Yeah, I like it. I like the thought of us of us trying to codify taste. <laughs> Even if if if, if, a good challenge. if we're touching on the surface of it, let's yeah. say for example, um, and we should maybe what might help, and I think you've done it in your book as well as you're using actual stories to communicate the complex ideas, and you're showing right. that there's evidence of it. The many books that I read that do that, they help me comprehend it, which is really important, right? Because books and writing and and, and all that stuff is all about comprehension. So perhaps we could do, you know, talk about, is there something that in your career that you've known, let's say there was like a certain television show that you grew up on and, and watched it a lot when you were just an imaginative child and, and then, you know, flash forward 20 years and you're at the mill or, and you're working there and whether, whether you know it or not, your taste and your intentions and what you're telling your team is coming from, oh, like that one cartoon and you don't really realize it because you think that the idea is yours because it's been so long, but it, in fact, it's actually, it's part of your existence. You know, do you think yeah. that's pro- possibly part of it? 
Oh yeah, definitely. So yeah, we're the product of of our environment, right? Continual environment as we as we grow. So definitely. So that's okay. So that's definitely one component. And I think probably Solar, my animated film that I made with Ed. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably. So I think the product of that was me studying philosophy. So which was six years earlier or whatever it was, and so that as a as I mean I didn't know it at the time, but. The great thing about writing a book is you get time to reflect and it's quite cathartic, like figuring out, you know, what led to what and how this came about. So this is a similar thing. So I think, so the, yeah, the product of things you've experienced is definitely one thing. I think another thing trying to codify taste would be you need to have a very clear picture of the mass psychology towards a certain thing. So you need to be able to take society or whatever group of people you're trying to connect with or communicate with you need to understand what their perception is at mass of anything and then you need to understand their intent so is their intent to laugh at the result or to be emotionally moved or to help make a decision towards buying something and then you can either match that intent so you can deliver something they expect so there's a payoff or you can serve something completely congruent to it so you can arrest their attention so that would probably to me come into it yeah that's Um, like execution right execution of your taste yeah i think so so it's more yeah it's just understanding how and why people make decisions about anything because all i mean even the stuff you do for you know the the title sequences and the films you're directing and that kind of thing even that there's there is intent there in your audience. They they go in expecting a dose of life in a way that they haven't seen before or they're expecting a, a visual spectacle they haven't seen before. Then you can pay that off or you can serve them something opposite so you catch them off guard. So that would that to me forms part of taste, I think. Sure. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely part of the equation. I think, you know, having those... I think one of the things that is really important for me when in regards to taste is understanding your own self, because how could you understand your audience if you don't know yourself? One thing I read in, in a book a long time ago that I thought was really great, um, I think it's George Lois's um, damn good advice for people with talent. He said, um, don't think your audience is dumb. And I right. think, and what I think he was also saying, at least to me, what I picked up is don't be dumb yourself, you know, (laughs) like be smart, you know, don't. And by smart, I think is being self-aware and uh, conscious of your own existence in this world. And then also others and what you're doing as an influence and impact on that, on that, on that body of people. And so I think the thing with taste is almost like taste is, could be almost as complex as the word love. If we're diving into that, because yeah, it's not more so. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. yeah, which is it seems like it's something that it's always on the tip of the tongue of people. And it really is very, I guess, working for me, working in this industry for the little bit of time that I have been, but being very much unaware of what taste is and aware at the same time and being aware of how that it affects everything that I do. Um, and then 
kind of having those moments and arresting people's attention. Like you said, I love those moments when I'm in the theater and something happens, that's totally like, what the hell? I'm like, wow. Okay. Well, I'm either it works or it doesn't obviously too. And sometimes it's jarring and it's too hard. It shakes me out of that reality or whatever their, the director's intentions, but sometimes it's really great. And I think that's also, that's a, that's part of, I think that's taste in a, in a, in a, in a category of taste, I think too, though. But yeah, taste yeah. is really interesting. Just write a book about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, people keep asking me what the next book's going to be, and I keep saying, "Holy shit, one was enough." <laughs> yeah, I imagine. I was going to ask you what were some of the the difficulties of making your book. Oh, I mean everything. <laughs> yeah, everything. I mean, still the single most difficult thing I've done in my career, and it's good though. Good for you yeah, for doing that. It, Set I, contrast. It, yeah, immensely proud of it. And, you know, and I got to meet some of my heroes while I was doing it. So Nick Park, who did all the Wallace and Gromit films. Um, so I interviewed him and he was the, the, the sweetest and most humble and talented man I've probably ever met. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, the just in terms of the process, it was... Uh, all spare time obviously um and it was it took me two just over two years uh, i did it the completely wrong way i did it the way no one should write a book which is i wrote the whole damn thing and then tried to find a publisher and most people write a synopsis or a proposal get buy-in get get the you know the advance and then do it and i didn't want to do that i wanted to write my book and then <laughs> then get an editor and publish. So that was wrong, uh, which is fine. It happened eventually. <laughs> um, and uh, it was just. Um, I guess you could write just, the whole thing, then uh, also write the synopsis, right? And not share the book thing with everybody, right? Is yeah, you could. Yeah, I yeah. guess there's a and different process. Also, yeah. the world has completely changed. Publishers and you know around the world are have to be aware of it, or they're not going to continue continually stay in business, obviously. But the, the way that content's shared and books in general are becoming kind of like this lost art, I guess, which is a very unfortunate because it's something yeah. that I love so much. So, but um, I think you're right. I think, I mean, it was, I, I mean, it was, if anyone listening is even remotely considering writing a book, I would, me, me, highly, me, me. I would highly recommend it. Honestly, I mean, it's, yeah. it will be hard and it feels like you have homework every day and, <laughs> You will, it's good there will never be, oh, and this is a really interesting thing. There, I mean, so there'll, there'll never be a time when you're not writing it. So I'd be on holiday with my girlfriend and we'd be eating dinner and I'd say, shit, got to be back in a sec. And I'd run off just to write down a note that's popped into my head so I didn't forget the damn thing. But also <laughs> my memory really suffered. I'm, I'm convinced this is true. I'm that because of writing this book and retaining all the information just on the book in my head, I'm convinced it affected my memory for at least a year beyond it because for the longest time I had the worst short-term memory. Sure, because um, you're constantly you're not letting things sit right and exactly, settle. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's, exactly. A, that's a that's a that's something that I read upon too because I have the same problem and it's definitely a proven thing that's a, a constant trend. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was pretty tough. I mean, it's just uh, and there's no so there's to my two bits of advice for anyone who's to write a book is. This the book that made it out was probably the tenth book I wrote. <laughs> so, awesome, yeah. You know, I mean, so that that happens, and you have to be. I had this note, uh, true, genuine true story. I had, I wrote this note that I stuck on the wall in front of my laptop, and it said, "Don't be afraid to write something that sucks." And what I meant by that was, you can write a sentence, you can write a paragraph, 
And if, as you're writing it, you're trying to make it perfect, you won't get anywhere. No, you won't. You yeah. have to write something. It's the same when you're designing, when you're directing something. You have to, you have to do something and get it out, and then you refine. And yes. There's no such thing as a perfect bit of structure or sentence or anything. So that was the other thing. Um, and being, you know, aware, it, being aware that you, you will be able to craft it. So I think having that little success, being able to write something, Stephen King, I read his book on writing as well, which I thought was phenomenal. I highly recommend it to anybody yeah. who's interested in, uh, in, in, in just writing in general, because he's, he's a master of it, but he did it through action. And he yeah. says the same thing. You just have to do it. He, he has a, ry- a rhythm of writing in the morning for two to four hours and he does it every day. And that's yeah. just how he does it. No matter what the mood, the tone, the feel, whatever it is, he's exactly. So that the last, my last bit of advice would be, so I was the opposite. I wrote it all kind of from <laughs> this time now in the UK. So from 9 PM until, so I'd, I'd work at the mill or, or at the tech companies all mode that I had because it overlapped the two. And I'd go, I'd leave work, go to the gym till I was like a clear my head. There's like a, a bridge between a, like a palate cleanser. Sure. I'd go home and sit and I'd force myself to write because there's never a moment where it feels like you want to write. Not one. In two years, there's not one moment I thought I really want to go and write. And it's just force and it's just will and it's just resilience. I can't wait yeah. to read all your hard work. I'm looking forward yeah, to it. Well. Yeah, no, I, and I really appreciate it. I feel like such a dickhead for not reading it. I'm <laughs> literally always. writing my own books right now. They're not books, but they're films. And it's like what you're saying, those equations, they're, you know, they're exactly the same thing for film or whatever. You could be making a sculpture or something. It doesn't, it's all just the love of the labor of it. And not even the love, it's just like the attrition basically, you know, like, you know, how much can you handle? How, how hard can you push? Um, And it is an everyday thing. I pity my wife. She's, she has to deal with me talking about this shit all the time. And thankfully she's not a very selfish woman. She understands (laughs) that, you know, I love her obviously, but these are things that Danny Yant said in in our podcast, he calls it the mistress. And I couldn't agree with him more about that connectivity. It's really what it is, you know, because we're constantly in our own head. But it's, For sure. it's interesting yeah. that you bring up the, the retention of information, short-term memory, fail, and all that kind of stuff. I have encountered a very similar thing because, and what I think it is from my own understanding, um, and it's good to be aware of that because it's a horrible trait to have because yeah. I'm constantly like, whoa, what's that? When is that? Oh, how do I do that? And I, and I feel like a five-year-old really. <laughs> and it's unfortunate because I'm a grown person that <laughs> should be able to do simple things, but when your mind is constantly turning, and I imagine you probably have work dreams as well, if your mind's constantly turning, um, the retention isn't as strong. It doesn't lock in as hard. And I always wonder exactly. if, if we're moving too fast. You know, are you ever afraid that you're moving too fast, working too much? Is there is there a possibility to work too much for you? And when is I, that? I think yeah, I think there absolutely is. I think um, you know, every now and then I meet people at a similar level in their career to me uh, or below is fine. You know, there's, and people say, you know, oh, I've been working, you know, 70 hours this week. And they, and I think, yeah, but they say it almost to be, you know, virtuous. And sure. I don't think, I mean, it's not, there's a limit, right? Because I've burned out once in my life, which was about eight years ago. And I know why it's because I didn't stop. And I, you know, there's, there's a limit to what the mind can take. And it's probably not body. It's, it's more mind. I think if I look at my work pattern now, we're, I mean, I'm 
two-thirds of the way through delivering one of the biggest campaigns, global campaigns, one of our automotive clients. And if it works, we'll all be heroes. But like everything in creativity, it's an experiment. And I, and I think the, the saving grace of this is there's, there's an end, which is the thing will launch, and then that will be it. And, but I, I can sustain this level of working where I, you know, we talk about work-life balance. Currently, it's work. <laughs> there's, no, sure. there's no alternate to that equation. And, and, uh, but there's a limit, I think. And I, you know, when you know, people say, how's it going? You know, I think, well, you know, I'm working hard and, you know, but you need, you need time to process. You need to stop and think. Otherwise you're not letting in all the other new things that are going to aid your creativity two, three, four years from now, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And the times that I do allow myself to have the break, to have the release, from the umbilical cord of reality, I guess we consider it when you can yeah. go and kind of swim in the ether and think, um, definitely. I think there's a, a pivotal, I have a real hard time of disconnecting and, and until I hit a real hard until I work super intense until I'm on the fringe of breaking. And then I can yeah. go, okay, I can break. I, I remember my poor wife, we were on our honeymoon and I was right in transition of, be, of, be, of of becoming what I was hoping to be. And so it was horrible timing basically, because all I could think about and worry about was work, how I'm going to make this, this next chapter of our lives work, you know, wanting to make sure I can provide and, and, and having all those equations and constantly having the, 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 the nagging reality or the, um, people's, you know, Oh, you know, starving artists. That was always like the biggest fear for me. And I would always yeah. think about it. And, now when I think about it, I laugh because it's all bullshit. You know, that's, that's just intention. When people say that, that's because they're fearful and they fail and they fail in the worst of ways. And they think that you as a creative or as an artist don't have value in the sense of being able to provide for your family. And that is the biggest lie ever established mm. in, in the creative industry. You can be a billionaire and do this stuff. I know you can. I could have seen it. I've seen people do it. It's just they do it in different categories. You know, they do it in different yeah. ways. They spread themselves out in different kind of facets and they find different loopholes and things like that. But absolutely, there's no such thing as that. I think there definitely is. And I think that people fall in, fall victim of that, um, that stereotype. But yeah, that was one thing that I found. I've had burnouts too. You said you had one eight years ago. Yeah. What was that experience like? And do you have triggers now to kind of hold you back from having that experience? And did that change you or what that do to you? Definitely changed me, not for the worse, but it definitely had its impact. And it was when it was towards the tail end when I was working at the mill. And I was, um, so I, I joined as an art director. A year later, I was uh, tasked with being the associate creative director of a digital department and uh i'd always been known as the designer within the mill and i mean most of my job was just writing treatments endlessly 50 or so treatments in the two years i was there for all these various commercials and trying to win business and so forth mm. and i was tasked with uh so the mill had hired a company to do their rebrand of the mill global rebrand and it didn't go too well. And, you know, they asked my opinion. I thought, well, it's, you know, I think there's room for improvement. And they asked me, they said, would you mind running this and just leading our global rebrand? So just a design, it wasn't touching the logo. It's just redesign everything else. And I remember at the time thinking, you shouldn't say yes to this. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and that was what my gut said. So the, the, the 
thing inside that you can't explain was saying, I don't think that's a good idea. Mm. And I said, yes. And the, so if there's one thing I've learned is always trust your gut. Oh, yeah. And don't um, be afraid to say sounds, no, right? <laughs> yeah, it sounds contrived. It sounds silly. But my God, the, when you don't, you it's like being hit by a truck. And, uh, <laughs> and we did. I did this thing. It took me 18 months to do this rebrand. And, the, and there was, oh, my God, I mean, unmitigated stakeholders and it was constantly challenged and and changed and it went on and on and on and and, uh, it got to the point where I was going to walk away and genuinely I was just going to walk away I said this you know you don't need this and I said no suck it up and finish and I finished it but it was the nail in the coffin and when I came out of that experience that was complete burnout because of the it was a very it's hard to explain why it wasn't really the feeling of like weight on my shoulders it was a very different thing it was almost like because you'll know as, as well as anyone and that you can fight to the death to get your thing out there in the world but if you're doing it in a way where you are proud of the outcome you know the outcome is going to be good there's like there's good hard work and then there's wasted time hard work do you know what i mean yep and i think the the reason for the burnout was i was it was navigating politics rather than doing anything creative. Yes. And, <laughs> it's the worst. Yeah, and the one you, thing, you know, the one thing I learned from that is very, it's so funny how life repeats itself because I'd been at AKQA for one year and Ajaz asked me if I'd do a, a similar exercise for AKQA. And I remember, I just remember laughing and saying, God, life is funny. And, and, uh, and I said to him, I'll do it in, on two conditions. One, it's just me. And two, you're the sole stakeholder. <laughs> and I said, okay, fine. Took me four weeks and it was done. That's awesome. And that's the difference. That's the difference. But yeah. you learn, so though. Yeah. 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 Good fun. <laughs> yeah, but you learn, though. And I think that it's hard to, and we go back to the the, the quote from Einstein, is the only source of knowledge is experience and try and, and, and experience, too. Like we talked about articulating what experience means uh, from our subjective opinion upon what he was intending for us to understand. But I think that that's really, um, that story, what you just said, I think is really uh, expresses that. And I've gone through the, when you go to burnout, I think is important to be aware of why the triggers of which happen. And then, um, but it's at the same time, we can use the analogy and these are all, this is a very hokey analogy, but it's something that I use quite a bit when I realize when I'm pushing so hard, um, I say, you know, like diamond isn't made without pressure, you know, like it's, it's coal, isn't it? Um, it's like carbon under en- enormous amounts of pressure, right? Which makes, creates the diamond, right? Yeah. Is that the ingredients? So I always think to myself, like, you know, there's this, this, it's, it's like this weird law in our, our simulation of reality that exists on this earth. There's a lot of, if you're just aware of it, there are like we are connected to nature nature is connected to us and it's all kind of connected if you can just you know connect the dots basically and so that is an, is a prime example of being you know the pressure that you put on yourself or the pressure that others put on you if you exactly. push through it to the point where you're on the verge of burnout it's it's, ca- it's really it's a thin line you know it is it is and the the, the thing the, the cause of the burnout for me in that instance was this quite scary realization, which was here I am in a role that people would kill me for in a company that people are desperate to work in. There's yeah. Academy Award winning and all, all everything else. Here I am in this 
circumstance and I have absolutely no love for what I'm doing. Yeah. And that's when I was 24, whenever it was, or 20, 23, probably a bit earlier, maybe. And it was, and that's a terrifying and horrible thing to think is that, you know, does that mean I've run out of love for making things for yes. this industry? And it was, and every day I would, the analogy I use whenever I talk about this with students or whatever is I would wake up every day and, so I go back to Solar. So the film, so it's probably still the, the project that I'm most proud of is the short film. And every single day in the eight months of production on that film, I'd wake up and think, I can't wait to see what other challenges there are, what else we'd have to learn or what we'd output no, every single day. Hmm. And then when I look back to the mill and that project, I would wake up every single day and go, God, I can't wait for this to be over. Yeah. And like that, I was, the, the worry and the burnout came from, you know, holy shit, how am I going to find the thing that makes me make it a labor of love again. Yes. I've had that too. It's very, it's very scary because like I said, uh, you blindly follow your muse and your love for things because love can be very misleading. And all of a sudden you're kind of trapped in this weird birdcage of reality and people's expectations. And I think it's really important to navigate those waters very cautiously and being aware of it and being aware of what your, your intentions and goals are so that you don't get kind of pigeonholed or locked into these things. I think that's just being self-aware and I found it in others quite a bit. Um, one thing that I always remember is, um, the difference between me and the peers that I admire is just choices. You know, it's like, we're mm. all humans or nobody's super power and they don't have superpowers really. You know, some people have a certain competitive edge based on how they interpret information and all that kind of stuff, their upbringing, whatever. Um, but when it comes to what I do, it's mostly just the decisions and choices people make, how they spend their time, how they, you know, interact with the world around them, who they team up with, you know, the difference between yeah. you and somebody that you admire might just be one characteristic trait that you just need to shift. And if you're yeah. aware of that, it's like, wow, it's, it's so eye opening. It's so amazingly, once you unlock that potential in yourself, it's just the world's everything to you. You can have anything you want and you can constantly have that feeling where you wake up and are curious, excited, what's going to happen next, you know? I think it's important to have, I think it's important to have a little bit of that, you know, like, oh shit, you know, like, uh, like you said, 20%, I have the same, uh, yeah. it's some, depending on the pressure, it's like anywhere from 60, 40 to 80, 20, but I try to yeah. keep it in the 80, 20, because I think it's important <laughs> to have the 20% there to remind you that you are a human on this ground. Exactly. You know? Yeah. I mean, we, we are fallible and, but I think the point you just made, which is, you know, this continual desire to do new things there's a there's a phrase i interviewed a guy called david putnam or lord david putnam actually and he was the producer on chariots of fire and he's a absolute british institution in his own right and a lovely guy and he had this one line which i think was just absolutely perfect in the book and he said you need a continual reappraisal of purpose and as a <laughs> and he meant it as an organization he meant it as individuals as a society and I thought, my God, that's just so that's eloquent and concise. Very eloquent, yeah. It's lovely, yeah. So that's, I think that's a very healthy thing to have, a continual reappraisal of purpose. Yeah. yeah, that's a great way of looking at it too. And that's very true. What's your value? What are you bringing to the table? Um, not only to yourself, but globally. And, you know, are you just kind of con- consistently making habitual routines or are you pushing things? And where does that come from? Is that your taste, you know? So 
Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of dynamics that are happening in this conversation. I hate to end it here in a couple of minutes, but yeah, it's yeah, really, of course. It's, it's, there's, no, you need, it's your parent teachers. Yeah, man. It's gotta, yeah, that's also priority, which I was, I was thinking about. I wanted to ask you, do you work with lists and, and what's your average day? Like, do you plan it and, and how do you go about kind of navigating, um, your, your life basically? How do you keep it in yeah. check and control it? Uh, so I, I'm increasingly <laughs> oh, the, the exhale <laughs> with the yeah. yeah we're like, not in the same room. You're on the other side of the earth. And I just felt it through the podcast <laughs> body language. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's intense. It's good. I mean, like I say, we're, it's a very bizarre position right now because this, because of the campaign we're delivering, but my typical day is, you know, we, it's very hands-on with all of our clients and it's very hands-on with all our teams. I travel a hell of a lot. I think I've been to the States about seven times this year and various different things. And we've just opened an office in Sweden. So I oversee that. And so there's a whole host of things going on and it's the quality of the work and making sure my team's happy. But, um, you know, I think uh, the, the great thing about AKQA and the reason why I'm there and the reason why I will do any job or any project for the future is I'm always surprised by the things that can happen. And if you miss that and if you wake up every day knowing what's going to happen, I think, I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to survive. So there's uh, every day is different and, you know, any, literally anything can happen. And I'm perfectly cool with that, I think, you know, and that's when I'm probably operating at my best. That's awesome. That's good to know. I think that's that's a really good key too for people that are, just kind of being aware of what they're doing and how they're doing it too. I always preach the process of, of what I do and how I work. And I think that, um, it's, it's helped a lot. I've had the thing we get a lot from this experience of this experiment, making this podcast is so much, um, encouragement and love from the audience. And this, this kind of stuff really helps. And I think that there's been some really high key ideas and concepts conveyed in, in our talk today. I'm really stoked. Is there, is I, and I appreciate your time, Ian. I really appreciate it. No, that. of course. And no, it's been, it's been really good fun. I mean, it's nice. All of this stuff, it's very, um, cause you don't, like you say, we don't get much chance to stop and reflect and it's nice to get it out. And I think for any creative person, I think the, we're all in the same boat, you know, and I think our, our weird thing or our stress or our concern is everyone's, you know, we all share the same thing. So it's, uh, I think it's a great thing. This podcast is to demystify creativity, this mystic thing that, you know, no one can quite, um, put into, into data. You know, I think it's good that we do this. Absolutely. And, and by having somebody like yourself, who's established and figure them like, you know, got yourself to a certain level, created a book, for example, is it, which is a very high task. Um, so I think that's something that I've heard from so many people while I'm writing a book or, you know, like, well, where is it? And that's yeah, because exactly. it's hard as fuck, you know, like you have to, <laughs> you basically have to give your life to it, you know? Um, and if yeah. you don't, then you have to work with somebody that you're both willing to give your lives towards it. You know, it's a very tall yeah. task. Um, but no, I'm really, I'm really excited about it. We'll have to make sure, um, we'll definitely have the book. It's, uh, for everybody that's listening, it's spark for, for the fire. Um, it's Ian's book. You can check it out. It's got amazon.co.uk as well as amazon.com. Um, Waterstones has it. It's available on the iBook store and Barnes and Noble. Um, if you go to ianwartons.com, we'll have links to all this as well. I'm just, I want to pl- plug your book, even though I haven't read it, <laughs> just getting a sense of who you are as a person and, and your, your principles of this. I'm sure it's going to be, there's going to be some really great things in here. 
Um, so I'm really looking forward to getting into it. And it would be awesome to have you back on if you're ever up for it for part two. Um, once yeah. I can process all this information and, and, and kind of <laughs> dig into your mind a little bit more and think about like, you know, more concepts and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, of course. No, absolutely. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Is there a way for people to get a hold of you? What's the best way if there is such a thing? You know, do you, yeah, do, you do the Twitter my, or the Facebook or what? what how do you access? Got it. Yeah. So my Twitter is just at Ian Wharton. My email address is on ianwharton.com. More than happy to just chat to anyone. Yeah. There you go. Awesome. I mean, that's how, how often do you get that? So if you're curious about what he's writing or just the, some of the concepts in this thing, if you know, he's willing and able to share his time with you. So that's really great. So yeah, man. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been a really intense and special episode. So yeah. My pleasure. Good chatting. Thanks, Ash. And that does it for this week's episode. Big thank yous to Ian for coming on the show and sharing his time with us this week. You can find links to Ian's work and all of the show notes for this week's episode at thecollectedpodcast.com forward slash 124, along with links to our Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes podcast page. Have an amazing day, everybody. You know the drill. Be powerful. Be prolific. Peace out.